0: Unabashed. The most unpredictable. Becomes a headline. The most volatile. Outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities.
1: Welcome to Grand a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. I'm your host, Milan Bashanav. In the early 1990s, India legislated sweeping new gender quotas in local government in the hopes that women's political empowerment would help to rectify centuries-old social and economic inequalities. India was not the only nation to adopt gender quotas. Countries around the world have utilized quotas as a way of ensuring that women gain adequate representation in government. But despite these moves, we know surprisingly little about whether and how quotas have undone entrenched social, political, and economic hierarchies around the world. A new book by the political scientist Rachel Brulé, Women, Power, and Property, The Paradox of Gender Inequality Laws in India, tackles precisely this question through a broad-ranging study of quotas in India and their impacts not just on women's lives, but on the broader systems of status hierarchy and dominance that permeate Indian society. Rachel is an assistant professor of global development policy at the Pardee School of Global Studies at Boston University, and she joins me on the show for the very first time. Rachel, thanks for coming on.
0: Thank you so much for having me on.
1: So congrats on the book. I want to start by asking you about a striking line that comes in the earliest pages of the book. Uh, You write, quote, women's global struggle for gender inequality is indicative of an even broader problem, dominance, where interlinked social, economic and political systems of power constrain low status groups, end quote. I was really struck, Rachel, by your use of the term dominance here. Um, It seemed uh, quite uh, intentional. Tell us a little bit about the system of power imbalance that you're calling out.
0: Um, yeah, thank you so much for highlighting highlighting this Milan because it is to me this is a core piece of the book and of this kind of broader intellectual and you know policy relevant project that I see it as as contributing to, um, which is about how do we get to egalitarian orders and to get there it's not just about gender inequality um, it's also about um, these these systems as you said of power imbalance that affect. Racial minorities, uh, particularly groups whose ancestors were enslaved, um, those with disadvantages who are form- that are formalized by hierarchies of either religion or class, or often both of those things at once. If we think about uh, the caste system, for example, in India, um, and individuals who that you know I, I observe firsthand um, whose participation in labor migration systems puts them into near permanent. Uh, statuses of marginality, where they often don't have access to um, legal citizenship, and and thus at any moment um, are are in incredibly uh, precarious not just legal systems but but physical systems as well. Um, and and we see that you know at our southern border in the United States. Um, as well as uh, migrants to the the Gulf countries um, if, if we look towards the Middle East, uh, but also in in these processes by which we see these massive uh, urbanization from uh, from rural to urban settings in India, in china and in, in, honestly in, in most of the countries of the world today. so um, this the, in each of these domains uh, we face uh, the, these um, significant gaps in um, in voice, in agency, um, in access to material resources, um, which loom that much larger because we see uh, these forms of um, status uh, inequality overlap. Um, and so you know to use the uh, the term coined by Kimberly Crenshaw uh, we can think about this as the uh, as intersectionality um, and so the way that she highlighted this initially was to think about, uh, the ways that um, identity is complicated by overlapping sources of disadvantage. And, you know, the one minor addendum I would make is that it's also, we also have these overlapping sources of advantage that put some of us, you know, on, um, uh, uh, you know, just at an advantage that is, uh, that that makes these, uh, those in positions of power have incredible stakes in maintaining the status quo because privilege uh overlaps across so many domains and and then you know from the reverse side, it makes uh overturning these systems of, of dominance all that much harder because those in um a, a, in these these subordinate positions um have to overcome so many disadvantages um to uh, to to make their arguments uh heard. Um, and to have a shot at at influence in these um, in, in these inegalitarian in egalitarian orders, which shape life across the entirety of the globe today.
1: I mean, it reminded me of uh, the arguments put forward in Isabel Wilkerson's new book on caste, right? We're talking about race, largely in the United States, where we're not talking necessarily about distinctions of difference. We really are talking about hierarchical orders and dominance, right? Uh, the prism through which you study gender inequality and gender empowerment is really the system of electoral quotas for female heads of local government in India. And as most of our listeners would know, these exist at the local level across India's villages and urban centers. They don't exist at higher levels of government, something that we're going to come back to later. Early on in the book, you discuss the example of a woman, Padmavati, who is a Dalit uh, living in rural Andhra Pradesh. Um tell her a, a, a bit about who she is, you know, how does her struggle and her example mirror the kind of broader themes that you try to study in the book?
0: Mm, thank you, Milan. Yeah, so um really stood out to me. And I, I had the pleasure to meet her many times, actually, um, in, in rural Andhra Pradesh, where I did uh, the, the bulk of, of my research. So um, I spent over a year, um, you know, uh, across a number of villages, but um, I kept coming back to her and I was lucky enough to bring my students to meet her um, as well. And, um, and she, I would say, um, her example. So as you mentioned, this is a a Dalit woman, and she had this really improbable rise into political power. Um, So not only did her, her cast, uh, as a, a former untouchable, um, make it unlikely that, that she would enter, um, kind of the, um, uh, uh, the, the state itself, um, but also obviously her gender, um, and so for her, uh the organizing to to create some kind of voice to create some kind of agency um took an incredible amount of time um and uh and creative uh resourcing and so the way that she started um, was was actually a a theme that I saw across many women who did make it into uh, politics, which was um, organizing on her front stoop long after dark, uh, after she had finished all the the duties that she was required to perform for her household. Um, And she really um, uh, built this infrastructure of uh, of collective female power um, from the ground up. And I mentioned this the, the fact that this happens after dark, the, ha- the fact that it happens on her front uh, porch because this really this organizing for her and for many other women occurs on the margins of what we would consider real life. Um, and this is the only time uh, the, that was really you know physically available to Padmawati to step outside of her traditional role. Um, and so what she did initially to bring women together uh, was by creating something of value. For all of them, which was uh, helping them to access microcredit in what was one of the first self help groups uh, in rural Andhra Pradesh. And, um, and here again, the way we think about self help groups today often tends to be these top down creations that are um, enabled by uh, central states or by international organizations. And um, I just wanna take a moment to say, you know, this is not at all the case of of what we see in terms of the early stages of of microfinance and these self help groups in rural Andhra Pradesh, which was built by uh, networks of really fierce female activists uh, who were creating something, uh, you know, that that, w- that was was a, a step forward. In a broader feminist agenda uh, to uh, to to rebalance access to material resources. So this is you know her first step, and uh, and and even so, even at this you know this really minor incremental change to bring women together from her local community and have them sit together and figure out how they could broaden the pool of material resources they had access to uh, was something that was very much out of sync with uh, with with the ways that things were were done. Uh, in her household, in her community, and so these meetings were regularly broken up by her husband, who would throw open uh the front door and uh and come out s- screaming at Padmawati that she was blackening the family name and pull her by her long braids back inside the house uh you know preemptively ending these meetings um, and so there was really physical endurance by Padmawati in addition to this you know uh the this this broader uh, intellectual commitment to advancing agency for herself and these other women that she had to mobilize again and again, but she persevered, and so over time she was able to mobilize larger and larger groups of women. And the the self help groups that she was a part of looked very much like this uh, the broader models that we see today, and that they were um, very committed to a notion of a federated structure. Um, and so Padmawati rose in this federated structure of these self-help groups and gained a reputation as a very effective organizer, uh, not just in helping these local groups of women, but then advancing broader causes. So uh, ensuring that women got access to the local state bureaucrats that they needed um, uh, to make sure that government programs uh, that should be distributed to them were, uh, that they were cl- correctly implemented and so on. Um, and she did this again in the face of fierce Resistance. Uh, so uh, she would recount numerous times where bureaucrats whose offices she had, you know, courageously stepped into, often with a bevy of women around her. And so this is very much what uh, you know. A forthcoming book by Soledad Prilman talks about is strength in numbers. It was very important to have this physical solidarity of other women to even step into these male-dominated spaces. But she would do so. She would make her case convincingly, and then she'd walk out. And uh what were typically male bureaucrats would spit in her face and say, you're not fit to touch my trash. Uh and so it's, you know, really again, um, an incredible amount of of courage that required was required on her part to, you know, again and again face uh these kinds of, of uh of 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 threats um that were leveled against her. By those you know from from her her intimate family to uh to authorities in the state um, and yet she perseveres and um, and these networks of women who who see her and value her agency grow and so when quotas open the door uh to women to compete for local elected office, she competes and she wins thanks to the votes of these women who she's helped in the past and so I want to mention this again, the substantive representation that she was really providing. For female constituents, uh, we talk about quotas often as enabling something that's much more looks like symbolic representation. Where we say, "Well, doesn't it make people feel better <laughs> to see, uh, you know, a, a woman in the seat of authority?" With the implicit assumption that all she's doing is really sitting.
1: <laughs> then, well, could uh, I could I ask yeah. you about this actually? Because sure. in the book, you argue that reserving the highest elected positions in village government for women. Sets into motion seismic waves, that's the term that you use, that unsettles an entire social, political, economic system. So, as you just described, this leads to a positive process of empowerment, but it also, under certain conditions, leads to pretty severe backlash. Now, when it comes to the gender quotas themselves, right, many Indians I've spoken with, and I'm sure you've had these conversations, are pretty dismissive of electoral quotas for women, right, insisting that what typically happens is a man will put up his wife or his daughter for election and then kind of remote control them from the background, from behind the scenes. How do you respond to that sort of skepticism?
0: Yeah. So I, I have very much as, just as you note, know, um, encountered the same kind of skepticism across the board. And, you know, this often t- takes the form of people noting that it's just the Pradhan who's really in charge. It's the, it's the Sarpanch, female Sarpanch's uh, husband who's really doing the work. And um, so I want to, um, so I've thought about this a lot <laughs> and, I, um, and I would answer it in three parts. Um, and so the first is um, to just note that that this is a um, this is an assumption that has both empirical and normative facets, um, and I think it's easier to answer the empirical ones than the normative ones. Uh, but I'm going to try to address them both. Um, so first, uh, for, on the empirical side, it's interesting just if we step back to the big picture and think about the arc of of political career paths. Uh, to note that there really is this universal presence, whether we're talking about a man or a woman's uh, career, of a godfather, uh, and this is to use Mary John's terms, uh, who initiates political careers both for men and for women. And yet this this sort of Uh, Presence of some, you know, additional uh, support or facilitator is really only considered noteworthy when we consider those uh, individuals who are not seen as entitled to hold these positions. So we think about this in the case of women, but also potentially in the case of, for example, scheduled caste men. Um, And so I do do want to note that uh, I I think we could do a lot more service if we really care about. how people come into office and who they are representing to think about this in um, um, outside of just the, the simple gender binary. Um, that said, there's a lot about the terrain of influence that we still don't know. Uh, and so uh, I'll come back to this in a moment because it, it shaped uh, two additional projects that I'm working on right now. Uh, but before I do, I want to also just tackle head on the normative dimension of of these uh statements um and here i think they bear striking resemblance to um uh, professor of philosophy uh, Kate, I think Mane Mann, uh, who's who's based at Cornell, um, and her definition of misogyny. So she talks about misogyny as a system of enforcement for patriarchal social orders, um, and where this is used to police and enforce women's subordination and uphold male dominance. And and she notes this is against a backdrop drop of other intersecting systems of oppression and vulnerability, uh, dominance and disadvantage. Again, we're not just talking about uh, dominance in a gendered domain, um, but that said, uh, at the end of the day, this kind of uh, social order of patriarchy, as she talks about it, has one pretty simple um, facet, which is uh, that they uh, that these kinds of norms uh, focus on um, uh, kind of enabling male entitlements and female obligations. And so in this context, um, it, I, I think that 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 this this these kinds of statements, um, not necessarily made with this intent, but essentially serve to police a particular facet of patriarchal order, uh, which says that women shouldn't be in positions of of political or public dominance. And so, if we see a woman in a position of authority, ig- ignore what you see, <laughs> ignore what you hear. Um, replace in your mind and, uh, you know, assume we could just all comfortably assume that there's really a ban in control. And if so, this doesn't, this doesn't fundamentally disrupt the patriarchal order. Um, and so I would just encourage to the extent that, that, uh, you know, these, these, these kinds of very common statements get made in, in whether it's in public or private to ask people, you know, how you know, Why, why do we say these things with such ease without any empirical evidence? Um, so that's the normative side, which I think we do need to take seriously. Um, and, and I do as a political scientist. Um, and finally, you know, I think to come back to the empirical side of the question, um, we don't know. We, we, we have no idea um, to what extent, whether we're talking about one or two symbolic cases of uh, of uh, sustained male dominance or whether this is truly the, the, the norm. And um, and to answer this question, uh, I'm working with some really fantastic other political scientists. So Simone Chauchard, uh, who is an assistant professor at Leiden University, Alyssa Hines, who is just about to join uh, the University of California, Berkeley as a Ph.D. student, um, to look at the terrain of influence, um, and so we have um, ongoing work, which is paused to the, the, you know, the incredible tragedy that that is COVID nineteen in India right now. Uh, but we are working across Maharashtra uh, to to survey male and female from upper and lower caste uh, sarpanches, uh, gram sevaks Upa sarpanches, um, as well as uh, village notables, balanced by gender and caste, uh, to get a sense of how authority works in practice in the presence versus the absence of reservations for women. Um, And we also are working to see if slight changes to the rules of deliberation um, can make a difference in ensuring that women's voices are heard. And then we've just gotten funding along with Bumi Purohit, who's another fantastic political scientist, PhD student at UC Berkeley, um, to work with the Self-Employed Women's Association to go one step further and to try to um, enable greater levels of, of uh, agency for female elected politicians uh, by uh, enacting uh, mentorship programs and uh, in, in under certain conditions with networking uh, training as well um, that uh, through through an RCT framework uh, to see if uh, you know strong female elected officials can help uh, junior elected officials um, avoid the specter of the Pradhan Pati.
1: So we're going to hold you to account, Rachel, to come back and report back on these things because, um, as you mentioned, I mean, these are empirical questions at the end of the day that we can find answers to. I want to transition a bit from quotas to asking you about the kind of substance uh, of, 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 of female empowerment on the ground, right? So the book, in large measure, focuses on property and property inheritance, right? And you do this by looking at a set of inheritance reforms, which were amendments to something called the Hindu Succession Act, which was passed way back in 1956, that gradually equalized inheritance rights of all daughters who are subject to Hindu law. Now, given that 80% of India's population is Hindu, and just under half of all Indians are women, obviously, I think it's pretty self-evident why these laws would be important to study. But I'm curious, kind of, what brought you, Rachel Brule, to the subject of property, right? Because you could imagine, if you were interested in gender empowerment, a range of domains that could be impacted by women's political representation. So, why this one?
0: Yeah, um, and and uh, thank you, Milan, for that question because property is really close to my heart, (laughs) and I can understand as a political scientist this doesn't seem like an intuitive um, kind of attachment. Uh, But so for me, which and this is something I talk at least just, you know, in a tiny section of the book about, because I do think it's an important uh, piece of the story. Uh, the, the thing that brought me to, uh, to the study of property was actually a um, uh, time that I spent in a neighbor of India, in Sri Lanka. Um, in, uh, while, while the civil war in the country was still underway, um, working with a neighbor of yours, Brookings, and um, the Consortium for Humanitarian Agencies uh, based in Colombo, but operating across Sri Lanka. Um, and, and I was there uh, as, a, as a grad student um, while I was was at Oxford's uh, forced migration program. Um, and um, President Kumara Tanga, then of, of Sri Lanka, had asked Brookings um, and the CHA to say, okay, so I want to end internal displacement how do I do it? So this is with the caveat that the civil war was still ongoing. So <laughs> it was maybe slightly optimistic to think um, that internal displacement, that was a moment where uh, it could be magically, uh, that problem magically lifted from the country. Uh, but that said, uh, you know, Brookings and the CHA took this seriously and said, okay, well, why don't we start by talking to displaced persons themselves and see, seeing what they say? Um, and so I went on their behalf to a number of uh, the camps where uh, displaced persons had been living now for, for years, if not decades, and, um, and just had conversations to say, what would it take for you to leave this camp and feel good about that decision? And um, again and again, what people told me was, we need property in our name. So sometimes they did have property, and it was actually under control of the military at that moment. Um, and other times they didn't, they, they hadn't had property prior to that. But the bottom line was that they said, you know for our security and to have a secure future for our children, um, we need to have secure rights to land and so that to me uh was incredibly striking um and and just gave me a sense beyond. The kind of you know intellectual or academic domain why why property can really make a you know a fundamental difference and so I I, I went to to start working in India after that with uh, MIT's Poverty Action Lab and particularly um, with Sendo Malinathan and um, and started looking at what was going on with property and um, and trying to see you know what were the dynamics what were the ways in which um, there there were really opportunities to fundamentally expand. Uh, people's access to property rights. And so combination of that basic curiosity, and then seeing work by Sentry Roy in particular, um, on the Hindu Succession Act amendment, uh, which brought to my attention of like, oh, wow, this is a radical move. This is uh, that the state is making to fundamentally expand property rights to 50% of the population. And as you say, it's not, it's, it's not really fair to say 50% of the population. Uh, this is weighted by just looking at Hindus. And it's a much more complicated story if we want to move to other religious uh, communities uh, about the conditions under which the state is willing to uh, to legislate and um, is really the appropriate body to legislate these kinds of rights. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, to me, that, that, that gave me a window in to say, this is something that should make a difference, um, and um, and this is a place where uh, formal property rights uh, could start to disrupt the the system of patriarchal orders.
1: Um, I mean, it's it's a good reminder to PhD students, right, that your your, your dissertation topic and subsequent first book will will hit you, <laughs> find you in ways that you may not uh, ever have intended. Um, you know, one of the main findings of the book is that women's political empowerment and the subsequent enforcement of their economic rights can create a massive backlash right especially amongst men who might feel that their rights are being impinged upon being taken away i'm curious like at a practical level on the ground you know how does this resistance manifest itself and, and do you kind of see this as the inevitable response to uh, or push back to a kind of greater move towards civil rights and equality? I mean, if you think about our own country, the United States, right? I mean, it seems like whenever we've made progress in one direction, there is often uh, a pushback in the reverse direction because we live in a in highly unequal society.
0: Um, so I I will answer it in two parts, and maybe let me answer the second part, which is, is this inevitable For uh, first? And I think, um, uh, yes, with a caveat. So, yes, I think if we um, if what we're trying to do is to fundamentally disrupt um, uh, in egalitarian orders um, and to redistribute fundamental entitlements, we should expect backlash. Um, if if what we're doing really works, there should be resistance. Um, I don't think power is ever willingly uh, revoked at such a large right. scale. Right. Um, that said, the caveat to me is the cost. And so I don't think. Um, that we, we can or we should um, be, uh, uh, be neutral when it comes to the cost of that resistance. Um, and here, I think and uh, we really can, I, I hope that my, my book does provide actually a set of tools for policymakers to think about how to anticipate um, and proactively uh, moderate the cost of that backlash by thinking about um, how to enable the intended beneficiaries' negotiations. Um, So how to make sure that they have bargaining power. Um, And that's, I think, a combination of complementary institutions, um, uh, uh, very concrete, uh, well-directed information about their rights and concrete opportunities for them. Um, And in that context, then beneficiaries... Uh, you know can take matters into their own hands and negotiate what i what i see in this case what i call integrative bargains that actually expand the pie of resources so transform negotiations from zero-sum games where you know uh, status quo beneficiaries lose uh, and and uh, status quo subordinates win to ones where everyone is actually better off because uh, uh, we have a more expansive set of opportunities on the table
1: yeah. I mean, I'm just trying to get a sense of, you know, you, you, going back to the Padmavati story, right? I mean, backlash was like this husband physically grabbing his wife by her braids and pulling her back in the house, right? So, I mean, we're not just talking about um, people are angry. We're talking about physical violence. You know, what, 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 is, what are the ways in which this presents at the local level?
0: Yeah, so thank you because I think this is an important part of the story and I will say it's the most uncomfortable part of the story and so um I I think it I it, I I really appreciate your willingness to, to sit with that. And I would say there are three forms of backlash. So we see it economically, we see it politically and we see it socially. Um and and the the one of those that I give the most uh space to in the book is the first is the the economic backlash and um and so here um, there's this striking shift where when we see what what quotas do by creating um, or you know enabling these female gatekeepers uh, to to replace male gatekeepers um, is is that they do fundamentally change the way the state works so they I, I mentioned they do three things they reconfigure public space so they make it accessible and safe uh, for women to enter the state um, whether we're talking about meetings of uh, of local councils. Um, or whether we're talking about, uh, 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 you know, questions of of, um, uh, kind of coming together to vote, uh, to discuss potential policies and advocate for them. Um, And one of the ways in which they actually make that that state space meaningful is uh, by proactively mobilizing women um, so that they know about their rights and they know how to effectively demand them. And here, um, I just want to note, that this is not about women being more altruistic um, or more socially inclusive necessarily than men, um, but rather about uh, really pretty hard electoral incentives um, where women need to establish independent voting blocks um, and, and independent sources of supporters. And women, on average, have at least in the past Uh, voted less frequently than men, um, and been uh, much less frequently in attendance in local uh, political meetings, rallies, and so on. And so this is kind of um, an an easy audience uh, to... Uh, for women to reach out to and um, to make them pivotal uh, in enabling women themselves to to make a difference in office, and the third thing they do is by uh you know repurposing private spaces as public, so enabling negotiations over rights and resources to be uh, to be had that are explicitly political inside the house before they have to reach uh, the courtroom and um uh, and so so I just want to add that preamble to say um uh, this is why I think." We do see, you know, a fundamental shift in women's ability to inherit rights in the presence of female gatekeepers, in the presence of quotas. Um, And so when these economic rights are purely symbolic, so prior to gender equalizing inheritance reform, prior to this Hindu Succession Act amendment, we see a, a dramatic increase in women's ability to claim in these symbolic inheritance rights. So um, from 10, about 10% of women to 16% of women inherit in the presence of female gatekeepers um, without female gatekeepers. We reform itself makes no difference in the likelihood that women inherit land or the amount of land they inherit. But once we have women ability, uh, women uh, who have these female gatekeepers who can claim their rights, once these rights become substantial, uh, so once we have truly equal gender inher- uh, inheritance, uh, that's where we see backlash. So uh, we see actually a drop in the likelihood. That women inherit land in the where we have uh, gender equal uh, land inheritance and female gatekeepers by nine to 10 percentage points. Uh, but this is concentrated amongst those women who don't have bargaining power. Um, and as you mentioned, I think about this in a term in terms of timing. So I look at this as women who are likely married, women who are 20 years or older at the time of reform. These are the women who suffer the cost, who suffer this, this economic backlash. Um, in contrast, those who are unlikely to be married at the time of reform, who are less than. 20 um, are the ones who can actually strike integrative bargains that lessen the cost of of reforms enforcement on their families by trading monetary dowry for land inheritance. And these women gain uh, uh, are much more likely to gain uh, land inheritance with female gatekeepers um, by nine percentage points, Uh, again, when we're talking about equal land inheritance.
1: Uh, This isn't just about Property rights, right? Because you have separate chapters on sex selection, which we know is a, a is a big issue. There's a there's a very skewed sex ratio in India. It's also about the willingness of sons to care for their parents when they get older, right? And one of the things that you conclude, and I think it's one of the major conclusions, and you paraphrase an Indian parliamentarian who who, who said this is that you know law without a paradigm shift won't work at all, right? So social norms, in a sense, have to change. So I'm just wondering, just to kind of show how broad the story is, is when you think about whether men or women in a joint family household are going to care for their elderly parents, what are, the, what are the other factors at work? Is it is it, it, it's about timing, it's about gatekeepers, but it's also about the changing social norms?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, again, I think social norms don't exist in a vacuum. <laughs> so um, I, I, you know, and I think that's one of uh, the the greater flaw and more important flaws in the uh, you know the way that academics tend to approach these problems is to look at them as really discrete analytic uh, questions. And when it comes to to social norms, uh, the way I try to talk about them are as ecosystems of interconnected norms. And so, in this case, when we talk about property inheritance, um, this is interconnected. Um, with the broader social organization that we see across uh, most of contemporary India today. Um, and so not only, so inheritance is, uh, is, is we could say it's, it's a right or it's an entitlement, which has in, in many communities, though not all uh, been an exclusively male entitlement, particularly thanks to the ways that uh, the British colonial rule harmonized uh, 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 Hindu law. Um, but so, so given that context, there is a set of obligations that are often typically associated um, with this, this, this male entitlement to inherit, which are the obligations to care, not just for the property, but for the family as a whole, for that joint Hindu family, um, which means uh, caring for, so remaining in the household after marriage, um, so that you can take care of the property, but also so that you can take care of your parents as they age. Um, and when they pass away so that you can perform the death rites uh, for your parents as well. Uh, and so, uh, this is when, once this reform breaks that ex- the exclusivity of, uh, of men's entitlement to property, what I find is that it also, uh, breaks a uh, son's sense of obligation to care for their parents in old age. Uh, and so the way that I look at that is by co residence uh, which is, uh, uh, one of the most, um, you know, important and easily observable parts of that obligation to care for one's parents, uh, and I find that where uh, when we're, we're just looking at the subset of families that have daughters and sons, um, we and just looking at um, firstborn uh, married so, adult sons, we see a significant drop in their willingness to care for, for elder parents when they have uh, a sister who is eligible to inherit and is likely to inherit because there is a female gatekeeper uh, that has been imposed by, by quotas, by reservations. And so the likelihood that, that these brothers care for their elder parents drops by 36 percentage points. It's an enormous drop. Um, and, uh, and this is uh, what I would call the social backlash that we see to the reform, uh, which is devastating for elder parents. Um, and, and I, I also mention a second, as, as you alluded to, uh, the second kind of facet of the social backlash uh, comes to sex selection. Uh, and so we see that the expectation that a female gatekeeper will enforce gender equal inheritance exacerbates sex selection uh, to prevent daughter's birth and we see this uh, a, a drop uh, that is is highly statistically significant um, in, in the ratio of daughters to total children uh, by eight to 11 percentage points uh, when we look across all women and, and all mothers in my sample. Um, although this is the only ray of hope here is it's slightly attenuated when we look at the youngest cohort of mothers in the sample. Uh, but, but yes, this backlash is severe, and I would say it ripples across generations, both affecting the older generations as well as you know, generations who have, who have yet, to be, uh, yet to be born.
1: You know, Rachel, one of the things that I really admire about the book is its honesty, right? So not just in terms of the findings, but also in terms of how you talk about the research design and the research process. I mean, I think sometimes um, you, know, you read books and articles, and and everything is just so, right? I had this <laughs> hypothesis and yeah. lo and behold, the evidence bear that out. And I yeah. did these three things and I had this perfect thing and there were no errors and there was no contamination. You know? And it's yeah. just sort of, <laughs> it almost stretches one's credulity, but in the book you talk about, and this is what you you say, you say it's, you know, the frustrating, incomplete nature of research design. So you're trying to look at real world policies you're not working in a laboratory setting, right? Um, And so it was a kind of refreshing dose of honesty about field work, about statistics, about the research process. And I'm curious... Why you felt the need to to include this? Because I could see you getting pushback from others, including maybe advisors, or like, eh, you know, just maybe leave that <laughs> part out, which might give people some doubts. But in fact, it was um, I thought only bolsters your findings, right? Because you you feel like what you're getting is the kind of unvarnished truth with all of the nuance it's required.
0: Mm, thank you, Milan. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like you know it's it's such a long process to to bring a. Um, a a book into being um that to me the more integrity that i can have in that process um uh the more you know kind of lasting value that i hope it has the more real conversations it enables um would be my hope um and um i mean i felt that i need to do that in part because i think it it is it fits with the broader kind of project that I would say that I, um, uh, that I tried to commit to, which is to make the invisible visible. Um, so to make what we often kind of gloss over or, um, um, or kind of assume away, um, evident and its power more clear. And so particularly I was thinking about, uh, you know we have this gender division of labor about what constitutes the public and what constitutes the private domain and the the gendered assumptions that we typically made about the public, the political de- domain being male and the private um interpersonal familial domain being one um that is is where women have their agency. And and to me, um that uh you know then we ignore the incredible um Political negotiations and really the roots of the modern nation, nation state that exist within the family. Um, and and to me, I got there by paying attention to the messier parts of interventions, by looking at why we don't have perfect compliance uh, with the Hindu Succession Act Amendment, why we don't see perfect and kind of automatic implementation. And um, and I think I hope that it is kind of a, um, it gives people permission in the future, as you mentioned. Graduate students, but also maybe <laughs> policymakers and analysts, the chance to acknowledge the messy parts of interventions and and to, to you know kind of acknowledge that we learn a great deal from from paying attention to and, and sitting with them, the messiness and the uncomfortable uh, pieces of those things.
1: I, I kind of want to bring this conversation to a close by by asking about some big picture stuff. So, as you know, for decades politicians in India have been debating the wisdom of instituting legislative reservations for women at the state and national levels. Uh, Right now, uh, as we talked about before, these quotas only apply to local level government. As this debate drags on, and I'm sure it'll continue to drag on, how optimistic are you that the creation of a quota for women at these higher levels of government could produce the kind of progressive public policies that might benefit women, right? I mean, do we think that this is a key part of the answer? Yes. (laughs)
0: Yes, <laughs> so yes, I do think quotas are a key part of the answer, and yes, I am optimistic that they will make a difference. Um, with a caveat, um, so the the caveat is that I, I would really um, hesitate to imply that all women are equal, or that all women are equally committed to this radical process of transformative social change. And um, and here, there's you know some excellent guidance from the work of Irma Clotsfiguras, who looks at Uh, state-level elected legislators. And she finds that um, women behave far differently uh, when they're sitting in seats that have been reserved for scheduled castes and scheduled tribes than they do in non-reserved seats. And it is in those reserved seats that we see women pushing very effectively um, for greater investments in health, um, in early education, and in favor of women-friendly laws such as the Hindu Succession Act Amendment. Um, And in uh, work that's under review right now, uh, with Elise Toth, uh, who's a graduate student at Stanford, uh, we look at, uh, the impact of two-dimensional versus one-dimensional quotas. So quotas that mandate that a woman from a scheduled caste or tribe, uh, be, uh, uh, be the head of the local panchayat, um, across rural India today. And we see fundamental differences when we look at, um, what women are doing in seats reserved for SCs and STs as opposed to what typically men are doing in those, those SC, ST seats that are not reserved for women or what women are doing who typically then forward cast or you know from other backward casts um, in those seats that aren't reverse, reserved for scheduled castes or scheduled tribes. And there we see fundamental changes in social relations and in intercaste conflict where we have two-dimensional reservations. Um, And so I'm really optimistic about the changes that can happen when we bring the most excluded groups into power. Um, And the final thing I'll say about this front is I don't think this is just um, idle speculation. I think if we look at the the recent elections in West Bengal, um, we can see that uh, where female voters themselves are pivotal, as they as they are in West Bengal, as we've seen in the past, and what what led to these these reservations in um, in Andhra Pradesh um, and Karnataka, among other places. That there we see policies change. Um, however, uh, you know this. This is much more likely to happen in the presence of committed female leaders, uh, as as we see with Mamta Banerjee. And so um, I think we have a long way to go. There's an enormous amount of resistance um, from uh, those who have a stake in maintaining the status quo. And I think without more competition politically, we're unlikely to see uh, the openings that are required to really uh, make higher level higher level quote as a reality, but I am optimistic we will get there because I think it is truly in everyone's interest to do so.
1: My guest on the show this week is the political scientist, Rachel Brulé. She's the author of the new book, Women, Power and Property, The Paradox of Gender Inequality Laws in India. Um, This is a book that tackles a really, really big question, but does so by making it um, tractable through, I think... Uh, a series of really practical investigations that don't hide the nuance, the messiness uh, of, of what it is to do research and frankly the realities of, of India as things exist today. Rachel, thank you so much for, for writing the book, for taking the time for sharing some of your wisdom. Um, it was great to catch up.
0: Thank you so much, Milan, for having me on the Grand Tamasha. It, it's uh, just a real joy and privilege to have these conversations with you now, and I hope uh, for years to come.
1: Grant the is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindu Sun-Times. This podcast is an HT Smartcast original and is available on htsmartcast.com, India's fastest-growing podcasting-producing platform. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we referenced on this week's episode, visit our website, grantthemasha.com. Production assistance comes from Jonathan Kay, Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Cliff Jayapranada is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and see you next week.
0: This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.